the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway. And if you're wondering why I'm introducing former Attorney General Bill Barr, whose brand new book, One Damn Thing After Another, is number one on the New York Times list with Paul Simon's Bubble Boy, it's because it is the only song mentioned in One Damn Thing After Another other than Scottish music. Am I right about that, Mr. Attorney General? And welcome back. Yes, you. Uh, you're right about that. And it's good to be with you. It's great to have you. Normally, I always use the music that are mentioned in the books, but you were <laughs> particularly parsimonious in that category. So <laughs> I was glad to find one song I could use. We'll come back from break with bagpipes. Uh, first question. Are you surprised you're number one on the New York Times bestseller list? Uh, a little, a little surprised. Yeah. And and grateful. Oh, it's, yeah. it's terrific. Uh, we were talking about it with my boys last night at dinner. And the one who's a politico said, everybody wants to read what he has to say about President Trump. And I said, what they really wanted to read is the whole thing, because it's really an amazing book, uh, uh, General Barr. Let me begin with a question not in it. Would you ever do it again? Be the attorney general, I mean. No, I think twice is enough for anybody. So uh, I don't think I'd ever do it again. Would you work with the transition? Because I think the thing that crippled the Trump administration more than anything other than the president's personality is that they were poorly served by the initial staffing the administration. What do you think about that assertion, and would you serve in a transition? I think I think that that's absolutely right. Uh, that's very observant. Uh, and, of course, I'd serve in a transition. That's anything to help a new administration. But I think you're right. I think some of the personnel uh, decisions made up front uh, really showed a lack of understanding of how the, the federal government operates. And I think they would have benefited from uh, some better people on the transition. A hundred percent. Now, I'm going to begin with the book in an unusual place. And I've actually read the book very closely. I may be the only person in America who read John Kerry's book, but yours is actually a joy. <laughs> I mean, I did. I read the whole damn thing. But yours is a joy. And I want to begin with something I don't remember. Talladega. And I want yeah. to begin with Talladega because you say on page one uh, 102, it was the most significant accomplishment as attorney general. Would you tell people about Talladega? Because it's a fascinating story. I told it to my boys last night and their colleague in the military, and they were just transfixed by this story. Sure. I, I was I was acting attorney general uh, when Dick Thornburg, who had been attorney general, went off to run in the Senate race in Pennsylvania. And uh, Clarence Thomas's uh, confirmation was pending on Capitol Hill. And things were on essentially hold until that was through. And I was sort of filling the gap. And, and in August uh, of 1991, and uh, 120 Mariolito Cubans who had come over in, uh, during the boat lift. And these were people who had been let out of prison in, in Cuba, these particular group. And they were, they were sociopaths, most of them uh, committed heinous crimes, 
while they were over here, and we were going to deport them back to Cuba. And Fidel Castro agreed to take them, and they thought they were facing death in Cuba, and they may well have been. Uh, anyway, they took over. We were holding them in this prison in Alabama, which they took over, a federal prison. And they had 11 hostages initially, ended up with nine hostages because they released two of them. And they were inside the prison wing, which uh, uh, building a unit, uh, which was like a big concrete fortress. And in any event, um, this came to me while I was acting attorney general. And I realized we wouldn't be able to negotiate with them. So I told the FBI to prepare a hostage rescue plan. And they used the hostage rescue team. This was the first time the hostage rescue team had actually rescued the hostage. It had been established after the Munich Olympics in the 70s. And and um, after nine days, uh, you know, I made the decision. We were worried about the safety of the hostages. The, the group was starting to get a little wild and talking about playing Russian roulette uh, with the prisoners. And so I ordered the, the hostage rescue and it worked. And uh, they blew their way into the the prison compound at four in the morning and, and got to the got to the hostages in time. Very close call because the people who were assigned to kill them when there was a rescue, you know, were pushing through the door and were almost had almost gotten to the hostages when the team got in. It's absolutely riveting. And there's a, a new show on, I don't know if you watch any streaming platform called The Mayor of Kingston which is based basically on Jackson, Michigan, where a giant federal prison and state prison complex is. And you review this, and the first person that wants to organize the Bureau of Prisons guy, and you say, no, we're not going to go with you. We're going to go with the FBI. But then there's a guy inside the building, the tapper. Would you explain what the tapper did? Sure. So for nine days, we were trying to figure out where the hostages were inside the facility. We needed to know exactly where they were because the nightmare scenario would be if they were spread around in, in one of the like 150 cells in the building. So we were hoping they were concentrated in, in, in one place. And one day, uh, one of the FBI people who was on the cordon around the facility noticed uh, an American prisoner, not a Cuban, who had who was in that unit, but was in his cell and he was tapping his head and he kept on tapping it. And after hours and hours of watching him, he figured out he had a very primitive code with one tap being a and two taps being B. And he thought that the guy was tapping out I N S I N S. And that led us to believe that they were being held in the I N S room, which was the immigration and naturalization service. And they did have a room there in that unit. And uh, we got some confirmatory information, and uh, that helped us locate it. After the operation was successful, I found out he was an American Indian. Uh, he had a lot of time left on his sentence, and we we uh, were able to get him out of prison as a reward for helping us. I, I want to quote this on page 103, an important end note you wrote. I found out who the head tapper was. He was a Native American convict with a very long time left on a long sentence. I took the necessary steps to have him released. I wrote down, is that just, Mr. Attorney General? Is it just? Yeah. Yes. It's just, and it's also uh, uh, practical and smart, because in the future, you you want people, prisoners who have long times on their sentence, if there's something they can help us on, uh, especially that involves the lives of 
hostages, uh, it, they'll be rewarded. That's what I thought. I thought it was to incentivize cooperative behavior down the road. But obviously, it depends on what he was accused of. You don't you don't or what he was convicted of, not accused. You don't detail that. Right. So I would love to know that off air sometime. Let me move on. Uh, you mentioned Justice Com- Thomas, who's in the hospital this morning, and our prayers are with him. Yes. Uh, and I hope he's recovering. There are reports that he is recovering. There's just influenza or something like that. But in the course of the Thomas hearings, you had to call Mike Ludig, now Judge Mike Ludig, back from vacation in Hawaii. I find that very, uh, that gives me a great deal of pleasure that you had to bring Mike Ludig back from Hawaii. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, I remember vividly, I got on the phone, uh, a messenger from Capitol Hill came into my office from Strom Thurmond's office. He was the ranking Republican at the time on the Judiciary Committee. And this was after the initial hearings were held on uh, Thomas, and it looked like things were going to move forward and he was going to get through. And then uh, Anita Hill made these, uh, had made these allegations, which were then leaked. And um, anyway, the, the messenger showed up with this affidavit from Anita Hill, and it looked like it could create some problems and probably lead to another set of hearings. So I called Mike, who had helped Clarence through the, the first set of hearings, and uh, worked with him, and he was at the, Mike was at the Justice Department at the time, but he had also been confirmed for a judgeship on the Fourth Circuit, uh, which is centered in Richmond, and um, he hadn't yet been sworn in as a judge. And I called him up, and I got him on the beach in Hawaii, and I read him the affidavit. I said, Mike, do you think we have a problem? He said, yeah, I think we have a problem. I said, well, you better get back because we really need your help. And he, he agreed and came back, and he helped Clarence go through the next set of hearings. I also like the fact that you sent him to St. Croix when it was basically a war zone. I can't imagine sending Mike Ludig to a war zone. Honestly, I don't. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I, I was – was half joking uh, with him, but uh, we were sending down a uh, hurricane had essentially wiped out all the uh, ha- you know the buildings on on St. Croix and and Law and Order had broken down, and we were sending down uh, again the HRT, the FBI hostage rescue team, and and the Mesh- the Marshals Special Operations Group to help restore order. And he was flying down on the plane with all the legal papers that we needed uh, the governor to sign and to have a conversation with the governor. One of us had to go down, and I said, Mike, you can go down. He said, why me? And I said, well, because I have kids and you don't. (laughs) (laughs) So I I love this, but I sent Ludig a note saying, I knew you were friends with with General Barr. I didn't know you were this good of a friend. And so it's, it's very, it's, it's very good when it comes to individual. I must say you are kind to people. You run over some folks like William Sessions uh, as FBI director is not going to, you know, give this book to people. And Anthony Fauci is now a one dimensional character. He's been flattened by the Bill Barr steamroller. He can now be pasted on my wall. So there are a few people who get run over here. But generally, you don't do that. You're not settling scores in this memoir, which is why I like it as a memoir. Well, thank you. I mean, I uh, and even when you say I flatten these people, I'm you know, I just really don't mention Sessions uh, much. Right. Just say that I didn't have a high regard for him. But I, I really don't attack people uh 
personally, my attitude in writing this memoir is that if I didn't have something good to say about someone, I really wasn't going to discuss them at length. So, Oh, that's interesting. I'm not mentioning this book, so I guess I'll take a message from that. I did do an interview with you, only one. I'm going to come back to that later, and I'm going to, okay. I'm going to score you a little bit about your media. Pro- you were served by the best media person in America, Kerry Kupak, and you, you did very little media. Why was that? Because uh, I, I didn't want to, you know, I partly because the Department of Justice, our work doesn't really lend itself too much to getting out there. We, a lot of what we do, we have to keep under wraps. But I think the main reason was I didn't want to, uh, you know, uh, wear out my welcome on the public airwaves. You know, I, I thought that I would have more impact if I came out only occasionally and said things. It's going to be an interesting conversation because I believe your central argument in the book about the decline of the West and what is going on with uh, progressive extremism ought to have been made when you were in office because now people need to read the book. I read the whole chapter, by the way, in the first hour. I'm so impressed with the introduction to part four of your book, which is buried deep. It's almost Straussian. Are you a Leo Strauss guy? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I haven't studied Ah. him that closely, but, you know, I I was... Uh, one of my mentors was Mike Yulman. Yes. Uh, and uh, he was a uh, Straussian. And so I, I think through osmosis, through his teaching, I, I picked a lot of it up. Well, what people know is that ordering of chapters matters a lot in a Straussian's view of a book. So I read the book that way. When we come back from break, I'll continue to talk with Attorney General Barr during the break and after the show. And we'll play more of it tomorrow. Don't go anywhere, America, except to Amazon.com. One damn thing after another. I've just gotten through page one of an eight-page outline of a 30-page outline after a 475-page book. So don't miss any of this. It's Distilled Bill Barr coming up on The Hugh Hewitt Show. I'm back now with General Attorney General William Barr talking about his brand-new book. Uh, and this is off-air of the radio, but it is on air on the podcast. I might play it tomorrow. Uh, General, we are in the middle of a confirmation hearing. Justice Brown Jackson will is inevitable. Uh, Mitch McConnell said on the show last week that she's going to be confirmed. Uh, I am. Uh, are you surprised by that at all? No, no, I'm no. not. It's not new. She's going to she's going to be confirmed. I want to go back to when Justice Scalia, your friend, died and uh, Mitch McConnell made the decision to hold that seat open. Do you think Mitch McConnell saved the Constitution when he did that? Yes, I do. I, I thought that that was a very courageous uh, move by him and uh, were the beneficiaries of it today. And that's what I, 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 I think very highly of the leader. I think he, he, he gets it from both sides, but uh, he has to herd cats up there and he does a very good job. I'm a McConnellist. And, and if you're playing the long game, you've got to be. But that decision kept the court from careening off in a, in a direction that we would never have gotten it back. Now, it doesn't mean the end of the republic. It just meant the end of the Constitution. We would be living with a living Constitution the majority of nine unelected judges. So I want to go back to something you talk about in the book, Souter versus Jones. And I learned for the first time, you and Mike Ludig were against Thornburg and Humphrey, but but John Sununu was with you voting for Edith Jones. And what happened? What was George H.W. Bush thinking? I mean, I, I don't know for sure, because I didn't go to that meeting. Thornburg reported on it to us. But uh, I, I think the president didn't want to use up a lot of capital um, 
if he could help it and, and get a conservative on. And so it was this idea of a stealth conservative. And, you know, there were some conservatives who thought that Souter would be conservative. And initially, um, Sununu suggested that he might be. But at the end of the day, uh, I think Sununu wanted to go for the tried and true and Edith Jones from the Fifth Circuit, um, who is definitely a conservative, uh, instead of taking a chance on um, Souter, which I think should have been a, you know, should have been a warning flag to the president on that. Do you, do you think Roe v. Wade will be overturned? We have 30 seconds till we come back. Uh, A.G. Barr. I, I think it'll be eventually left to the states. That's yeah, what I think. Yeah. And I yeah. think they'll do it. We're going to come back and talk about SCOTUS a lot, but I think they'll do it in the, in this case coming up. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with more Attorney General Barr when we return to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. The bagpipes are playing because former Attorney General Bill Barr is an accomplished pipe player. Have you ever watched in the Scottish Walk in Alexandria, Old Town, Mr. Attorney General? Yeah, I, my band did it once back in the uh, back in the mid eighties. So, yeah, it is. It's always rousing. I'm there every year that I'm in town. Let's go back to the memoir, uh, Flight One Hundred Three, Lockerbie. You were. Um, deeply involved in the decision to respond and how to respond with George H.W. Book to this uh, Libyan terrorist attack on Flight 103. And you wanted a military response. H.W. Uh, mused about what was going to happen, decided not to do. Then you jump ahead to military tribunals and what happened after 9-11. Evidently, H.W. rethought Lockerbie after 9-11. I was told he did. I, I, I was told that he uh, had commented to a number of people that he wished he had taken stronger action in the wake of 103. Um, I, you know, it ha- the the we took two or three years of painstaking investigation to establish that it was the Libyans, and there's no doubt in our mind that it was the Libyans. We had the evidence to prove it. And when it came time to indict the Libyans, the Libyan intelligence officers, uh, I briefed the National Security Council. And I was a little bit surprised that everyone started talking about the idea of you know, putting pressure on Libya to surrender these particular intelligence officers. And I said, that can't be the whole, the whole response. I mean, does anyone really think that these intelligence officers went off and did this by themselves? This was Gaddafi's operation, and we should respond. This was an attack by Libya. Uh, for the purpose of killing hundreds of Americans. And so uh, at that time, it was the biggest terrorist attack ever against the United States. And so um, I urged that we, uh, you know, conduct a bombing campaign to destroy the intelligence uh, headquarters and also go after Gaddafi if possible. And... uh, for a number of reasons, uh, I think people were sympathetic to the idea, but uh, uh, we didn't go that way. We we increased sanctions against Libya. Now, and I want to jump was- ahead, uh, Attorney General Barr, to the military tribunals that followed 9-11. The, the book, 
uh, one damn thing after another, has many arresting statements in it. The most arresting sentence in the book is when you say the fact that KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, has not been tried, quote, suggests that we as a nation have lost our will to survive. Now, you don't have to persuade me of that. I think that's true. But would you expand on that for the radio audience? Why you think our paralysis at Gitmo suggests the country has lost the will to survive? Well, I, I, I preface that by going through the, the episode in contrast with the episode of uh, the German saboteurs that landed during World War II in the United States. And we picked them up within uh, two of them uh, turned against the operation and reported to the FBI and helped and helped roll up the rest of the group. And we uh, charged them, tried them before a military tribunal and executed them all within 60 days or so. And uh, I said, that's when in this country didn't get around. Um, here we have uh, KSM and the other uh, co-conspirators uh, charged and uh, it's been over 20 years, and nothing has happened to them. We can't even get a trial underway down in in uh, Guantanamo. And now there are reports in the newspaper that the administration, in order to get guilty pleas, which, by the way, they were willing to do very soon after they were apprehended, um, but is willing to give up the death penalty for these people. So... Um, They'll be uh, spending the rest of their life. If they take it, they'll be spending the rest of their lives in a you know, taxpayer expense in a federal prison. But why does it suggest that we have, as a nation have lost our will to survive? Because we're not, you know, we're not willing to, to mete out uh, punishment, justice to people who attack the United States as part of a terrorist attack. We're not willing to deal with terrorists decisively. It's the most and, obvious thing in the world to me. That a country that will not execute people that uh, attack it um, after a fair trial, we can't even get the trial going. And that's because of Justice Kennedy. You're very diplomatic about Justice Kennedy. Way too diplomatic, in my view. But he screwed up all the the military combatant jurisprudence, didn't he? I teach these cases every year. Yeah, in the Boumediene case, you know, we basically have extended constitutional protections that we give to criminal defendants and who are members of our political community here. And we extend them to foreign enemies when they're attacking the United States. It's quite absurd. I mean, there's no historical precedent for neither British or American law. And it, it was just absurd. Do you expect the Supreme court to turn over those cases, uh, general Barr? uh, Well, as I say in the book, I think uh, the next Republican administration is going to have to, uh, push on that front and get a lot of those very bad precedents uh, reversed because they've they've tied the hands of the military. We are the only military in the world. And look around. We don't take prisoners anymore. Starting with that decision, you know, we had these big sweeps in uh, Afghanistan. We didn't take prisoners. And I, I, I we sort of caught them and then released them. Or if we thought they were really bad guys, we would give them over to the Afghans. But we don't, we ourselves don't take prisoners anymore. No, we don't. Because the law is all screwed up. Although there is one example, which I told the story at dinner last night, because I love this story. I will not forget this story from one damn thing after another. 
the Beatles, the ISIS Beatles, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. People have to realize we, we nicknamed four terrorist killers who beheaded Americans, uh, George, Paul, John, and Ringo, because they were all English. Turns out two of them were in a Syrian prison being patrolled by the Kurds. And you call over to Team Esper, and you want to get him out when ISIS, uh, when that area is going to be overrun by Turkey and the, and the fighters, the terrorists are going to be freed. And Team Esper says, no, we're not going to do that. And so you go to the White House. Tell people what happened next. Yeah, it, just a, it wasn't Mark. It wasn't Mark that, that I had the conversation with. But but uh, the military commanders were reluctant to use special forces to secure the Beatles, who we had charged in federal court. So we wanted to bring them back to the U.S. to, to try them. And um they were in danger of escaping. And I also, we have also had a list of other bad actors who we didn't want to escape. And um, after I was told that we weren't going to protect them, I mean, we weren't going to retain custody of them and, and secure them. I just jumped in the car and went over to the White House. One of the things about the president was he was very available. And so I just went into the Oval Office and he was in the back room with with national security people, including DOD people, I said, "What do you want?" And I said, "Look, I said, you know, we have we have ISIS prisoners, thousands of ISIS prisoners being held by the Kurds, and if the Kurds uh, retreat, we're going to lose those prisoners." He said, "What do you want me? To, you want to send them to Guantanamo?" And I said, "Well, not not yet, not all of them. I, I ultimately I do, but uh, right now I have an emergency. We have to secure these two guys, the guys who beheaded the Western hostages." And he just looked over at the uh, DOD guys and said, go get them now. And a few hours later, we had them. Um, he also said, anybody else you want, Bill? Yeah, you said, anyone else you want? I said, I'll be back to you on that. Well, I was afraid so, you would name now, some journalists. That's good you didn't. They could have been picked up. Yeah. <laughs> well, now, you know, that's, you know, people, uh, I, I give the president a lot of credit in the book. It's been presented as a, mostly an attack on him, which it is not, but uh but i i think one of the things about his impulsiveness which is a good side of it there's a bad side to it but the good side of it is he would cut through you know the inertia of the bureaucracy and use common sense and get things done very quickly yeah people don't read books and they come up with they come up with summaries of bill barr attacking donald this is the most balanced treatment of donald trump i've read the good the bad the ugly and the beautiful and his penchant for action and his availability are two of the good things, General Barr. And I, I really do think this is the this explains Trump better than anything I've read. Thank you. Thank you. I tried to be fair, and I think he played a, an important historical role. I think, uh, you know, there are aspects to his persona that, that I don't like, but I think at the juncture we were at at 2000. 16 election, he may have been uh, a necessary figure to put the brakes on on what I felt was uh, the, the progressives' march, uh, uh, you know, pushing America over the abyss. And he he put on a full goal line stance and and stopped that. And that I think is a historical achievement. It is, and he saved the Supreme Court. And I I yeah. point out to everyone, our country doesn't survive without the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't survive without a, a court that respects its original intent. 
And the three justices he put on there is his most significant enduring legacy, even more than the Abraham Accords, I believe, even more than Operation Warp Speed. Those three justices, if they do their job, do you think they will, General? I think generally they will, and I agree with you. Uh, as I say in the book, just on the issue of the Supreme Court, I would have voted for Trump and supported Trump. And I think, you know, they may not on every single case vote to my liking, but I think in a broad sense they will, you know, they will put the court on a, on a conservative, uh, lawful uh, trajectory. Uh, aside, you don't deal with this in the book. Sibelius uh, versus National Federation of Small Businesses. I am the only conservative I know of who applauds the chief justice's opinion in that. Are you with me on that or are you with every other conservative who thinks it was bad? Um, <laughs> tax? He's ruling on the taxes? Yeah. The upholding Obamacare by virtue of rewriting the statute to find it to be a tax bill. Well, I actually did research on the tax issue myself, and I think he was wrong on the tax issue. I don't think, simply because I don't think this could have been a direct tax that the federal government could have enacted. But uh, so, so I thought he was wrong on that. Now, as a prudential matter, if he was persuaded that he was right, doesn't the constitutional doctrine of avoidance oblige him to punt? Yeah, I think there's an argument an argument to be made, yes, that if it can be sustained on other grounds, uh, you know, you should sustain it on those grounds. My objection was it, it was not a, it was not a legitimate tax. So uh, the, but, the the chief justice comes into under heavy weather all the time. He's a friend of mine, as is Mike Ludig, as is all the White House. Yeah, counsel and, and by the way, right? John John is a friend. Uh, John Roberts is a friend of mine too. Hey, he swore you in. It's where you went. It's in the book. So I'm just curious what you make of the conservative critique. They love to hate on Roberts. And I point to Citizens United and say that his concurring opinion on stare decisis is probably the most important opinion I've read in 20 years. Yeah, I'm sort of like you, you in the sense that, you know, I think these are the uh, John Roberts is an intellect, you know, intellectually honest guy who does his best. Uh, in the conservative tradition to apply the Constitution. They're not every case I'm going to agree with them on, but I don't get particularly exercised or personally angry at the justices who disagree with me or with whom I disagree on particular cases. I look at their overall record. And his is, is really quite salutary. Let me now turn to the two big themes. There's a lot of individual things I want to talk. I want to talk about MS-13 and the 18th Street Gang. I want to talk about many things. But the two big things, 30,000-foot assessment, one is that public education has become a bastion of secular absolutism, basically a state-sponsored religion. I have heard this argued many times by people who do not have your credentials, General Barr. Do you think this theory has a chance of prevailing? Because if it did it would radically change education to the good in America. Either people would get out of the indoctrination business into which they have fallen, or public schools would go away. Yes, I do think it has a chance if people stop and think about it, including the justices on the Supreme Court. We've basically finessed the problem for, for a long time because basically schools uh, – uh, taught a sort of watered-down version of Christianity as, as the basis for personal morality. Uh, but that stopped in the 60s. 
Um, and then we had a period where they tried to strip out Christianity. But what's happening in the public school is really a microcosm of what's happening in the West, generally, in our society, which is that the, the moral system uh, no longer has a foundation. It was founded on Judeo-Christian tradition. And when that disappears, um, there's a temptation to come in and substitute some other uh, ism, some other metaphysical system to support the morality that you're trying to teach people. And most, mostly, most in the West, we, we think of education as more than reading, writing, and arithmetic. We think of it as also contributing to the moral formation of people. And that creates a problem uh, when we provide education through state systems, because then the state, uh, in order to substitute some kind of um, belief system for Christianity, is going to be teaching some kind of ideology, and, and we're going to move into indoctrination. And that's what we see happening. I call it secularization by, by addition versus secularization by subtraction. They're trying to offer an alternative explanatory system as to why people should behave in certain ways. And when you stop and think about it, I don't think the state has that power. I, I, you know, the state has an interest maybe in saying we want kids to, uh, it's in our interest and we want to promote reading, writing, and arithmetic so people can communicate with each other and they can you know, perform the basic functions we need in society. But in terms of teaching a particular ideology or ism, uh, I don't understand why the state would have that power. We don't think of the state. We think the state is a, is a limited institution, and it doesn't have the right to sort of form people in their own image, which is what we have now, and the idea that they can trump the rights of the parent. Um, so, uh, you know, when people stop and think about it, I, I think they will say, yeah, the in our in our system, the only way to you know the only way to uh, handle plural pluralistic system like ours is to let people choose their schools. And as long as the schools are accredited because they do a good job of teaching reading, writing, arithmetic, they can be raised in a, in a within a religious tradition. And I hundred percent agree. But I'm a Catholic school kid. I just want yeah. people to understand. The Jacobites have taken over education. And, and as you detail in the second, I, I just found, I read the whole chapter, the introduction to part four on the air in the first hour, because it is in succinct fashion, what has happened to the Democratic Party, which is now nested within it, this radical, radical leftism, not democratic liberal order. It's not Jack Kennedy. It's not Lyndon Johnson. It's not even Jimmy Carter. It's Obamaism, and it is hardcore replacement of basic Western civilization tenets, and that is an establishment clause problem. And you argue that. Have, have we argued that in any papers anywhere yet? I don't think. No, I don't think that's been argued yet. But I think it's it's become much clearer by this point uh, because it, it's one thing to teach things that are scientifically, you know, that reflect scientific consensus and so forth and so on. But now they're teaching clear ideology. So, for example, to teach a kid that there are more than two genders and you can get to pick your gender and no one else can tell you what to do, tell you, you know, it's what you feel. That 
is not supported by science, clearly, and it is, you know, an ideology. And it's a state-supported religion. I mean, the, the real right. climate ch- uh, crisis is not the CO2 crisis. The real climate crisis is the crisis of education, where the climate of moral relativism has become a state-sponsored theory. Right. Um, right. About about the Philadelphia case, one of our listeners is Archbishop Chaput, who's a friend of mine, old friend of mine, probably a friend of yours. And he yeah. brought the adoption case, and we won. But you indicate in one damn thing after another that you were disappointed. I'm not because I think Amy Coney Barrett just served warning. I think she said the next one, we're rewriting right. Smith. We're overturning Smith. Do you agree with me on that? Uh, hopeful, Yeah, I'm hopeful about it, and I, I think you're right. Um, and I think I sort of suggest in the book that although they didn't go as far as I would have liked them to in Philadelphia, I think the handwriting's on the wall. Uh, and I, I think they will move in that direction. They need a new test. They got a Barry Lemon, yes. which they just got to come up with a new test. And it, right. and she basically said, come hither or come all. Give me a test and we'll study it. And I think they've got six votes. I think the chief justice will be in on that when it comes. So back to the second big 30,000 foot. We are the the product of classical ideas, common law, English wids, American Revolution, and constitutionalism. This cannot be overstated. I begin my law school class every year with, you ended up here by two paths. Bill Barr's path is Ukrainian Jews leave Ukraine and come to New York, and Irish Catholics leave Ireland and they come to New York, and Mr. and Mrs. Barr meet. Where did they meet? They met in a funny college somewhere. Where did they meet? They met in the University of Missouri uh, in Columbia, Missouri, during the war. My father had been sent there by the Army to learn Italian. He already knew how to speak German, but they were going to teach him Italian uh, because we were invading Italy and we would have a lot of Italian prisoners. So, And he was OSS. This is the unlikeliest parent story. He went into, he went into the OSS. Hmm? Yeah. This is the unlikeliest parent story I've ever met. Uh, during World War II, the, the Ukrainian Jew meets up with the Irish Catholic girl at the University of Missouri, and they birth an attorney general. So that's kind of an unlikely story. I like that. But uh, people have to read the beginning. I read the beginning is fascinating. I want to go, though, to the, the, the second part of the 30,000 feet. You level legacy media. Now, I have been living as a missionary in big media for the last 30 years. Now I've become a refugee from it, and I only do Fox and my own radio show. But I tried. There is no point of view that's acceptable except the hard left point of view in legacy media. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Yeah, it is a corrupt. It's a corrupt institution. It's gone beyond bias. It, it is a activist, partisan, uh, ideological operation. There are individual journalists who I think have retained their integrity and their professionalism. But institutionally, they work, you know, they work for entities that are corrupted. Now, I'm, I'm just curious. Their, their ratings are declining. The three networks, CNN, MSNBC, they're all falling off. Only Fox is thriving. Don't the shareholders have an argument that they're destroying the value of the companies in which they invested? Yes, I think they, you know, they do. But, but, but that's something that you know, presumably the shareholders should enforce through their votes, and uh, they don't. They don't do that. All right, let me. Let me. You and I could bitch about the media all day long. Let's not. I want to tell people about MS13 and the 18th Street Gang. I'm pretty well informed. I never heard of the 18th Street Gang until I read your book. 
I covered MS-13 when I was doing the nightly news in L.A. for 10 years. These are not minor problems. At the beginning of your book, you talk about street gangs. The second part of your book, you're talking about MS-13 and the 18th Street Gang. The third part, you're talking about narco states and the cartels. They're all connected. But boy, do we have a problem, General Barr. Yeah, we have a huge problem, a huge problem. Um, the uh, and, and in some ways, this reminds me of, of H.W. Bush's administration, where the focus was on the Gulf War, as it should have been. That was a critical uh, operation and an issue we were dealing with. But then when the war was over, people started focusing on domestic issues. And right now we're focused on Ukraine. But we also have to remember that we have a, a whole slew of, of, of pressing domestic problems. One is violent crime. Part of that violence uh, uh, comes from these terribly vicious gangs uh, that come up from uh, Central America. Uh, and we also have a, a massive drug problem. Well, we're now losing 100,000 people. I think it was 104,000 last year on overdoses. A large share of those overdoses, a growing proportion of those overdoses are due to fentanyl, which is murder because, you know, they put just the tiniest amount of that can kill someone and they, they, they uh, drizzle it into all kinds of drugs and people don't know what they're taking. But we have the drug problem and the cartels acting with impunity uh, down in, in uh, uh, Mexico. Uh, and then we have the violence, just the regular street violence. Uh, crime is going up and I don't see any anything that's going to turn that around coming out of this administration or the local cities where this is a problem. And it's no longer about money. One of them is a death cult. I mean, you are very explicit. Uh, there should be a PG-13 warning on this book because it's going to be very disturbing to people. So I have a question for you. Narcotics are pleasurable, escapists, and addictive, as you point out. Why not legalize them, General? Why not? And I was never here until I finally begun to focus on 100,000 dead. I began to focus on the amount of money that we are enriching the narco states. We have a failed state on the southern border. We have gangs that are running countries, and there's no end in sight. Why not take their money away? The addicts are going to be the addicts. Why not give up and let people go full Brave New World and zone out rather than subsidize these people? Well, first, I mean, enforcement is necessary for, you know, generally people aren't going to be able to get off and receive, uh, you know, rehabilitation and so forth unless you have the hammer of enforcement. You take enforcement away and the ability to require people to go into rehabilitation and so forth. You're not going to have that. So once once they're into the drugs, it's going to be very hard to get them out without, an, without a, a strong enforcement regime. But more fundamentally, you really... Look, look what has happened with marijuana. It has not reduced violence. It hasn't taken uh, illegal operations out of business. They, they, there still is a black market uh, where unregulated marijuana trades. Um, and there, then there are all the externalities of marijuana use, you know, car accidents and other things like that, intoxication. Uh, and then you start thinking of how, how would you actually – be, how would it be distributed? The more re restrictions you place on it, like you know, preventing sales to pregnant women or what, whatever the restrictions are, 
you know, you'll have an operation come up that doesn't have those restrictions. You'll have the black market form. And when you're starting to deal with really destructive, I mean, I think marijuana is destructive, but you start dealing with methamphetamine, which is a hideous drug. Um, you know, the social costs of that are immense. And, they are, but we're getting them anyway. And so the negative externalities of the enforcement regime, I'm not wedded to this. I'm not a libertarian yeah. crazy. I'm just right. worried that the existential threats and they're piling up big tech, China, narco states. If we take the financing of the narco states off the table by legalizing it. Now, I know you point out that they're still trading in marijuana, which would be counterintuitive to what I'm arguing. Did you ever have a roundtable at that big conference room on the fifth floor where the endless meetings occur on Friday morning and talk about should we consider, you know, Soma for everybody? That's the the Oddless Huxley fake drug. Yeah. No, we never had that. We never had that discussion. I think that, you know, that would finish us off as a as a society. But, you know, even the externalities we have now. You know, the law enforcement keeps some bit of a lid on on things, but uh, and and all the programs, all the prevention programs and, and rehabilitation programs, you know, nip away at the margin. It's just that we really haven't decisively addressed it. And from my standpoint, we haven't addressed the supply side. Um, and and you know, we have to deal with that. We have to. The, the, you know, Coke is something that can only grow in certain limited areas of the world. You point that out. Yeah. You point that yeah. out. Yeah. And, and, and we could, we could, if we really put our mind to it, uh, you know, take it, take out all of that Coke. And we're trying to do that in Colombia. It's just that the American bureaucracy is very slow. You know, we had, we did have an administration in Colombia that was willing to, uh, to take out, eradicate all the, all the Coke in Colombia, which is the, most of the Coke that comes into the U.S. And, uh, we, we didn't, never got around to doing it. We, we now, the problem now, though, is, is fentanyl. I mean, the only conversation I had, I had two conversations with Jared Kushner, who, by the way, is portrayed very well as is Ivanka in, in this book. And I found it that he was a very reasonable and smart guy. And one of those occasions was I was opposed to the first step back. He called me up and asked why. And it was because they didn't deal with fentanyl hard enough. They were going to let fentanyl dealers out. That changed in the course of negotiations. I don't know if Jared changed it or not, but that was my objection. So I changed. Uh, would you have voted for the first step back if you were in Congress? I, I would have tinkered with it a little, but generally I didn't have a problem with the first step back because, uh, you know, it did essentially keep mandatory minimum sentences for drug distribution and other serious crimes. It kept them in place. Uh, you know, it undercut them a little bit, uh, but only in tangential opinion. So I would have gone, I would have, I would have supported it. Okay. Let me give uh, some uh, spicier stuff here. Special counsels. I'll come back to John Durham in a minute. Let me talk about Lawrence Walsh. Thank you for doing that. I, I've been making this argument about Lawrence Walsh forever and nobody listens to me. He intervened in the 1992 election. Candy Crowley intervened in the 2012 election with her debate fiasco. Russia intervened in 2016, and Facebook intervened in Twitter in 2020 by censoring Hunter Biden. Of those four interventions, which was the most impact, the most material? I don't know that any of them, except maybe Walsh, materially affected the election, but how do you assess their materiality to the result? 
Well, the ones that stick with me are Walsh and uh, the, uh, the the laptop, uh, the, the intelligence officials suggesting that it was Russian disinformation in order to essentially keep a cork in it until after the election. I, I do think that that, given how close the election was, uh, you know, I think that that probably affected the outcome, or at least there's a very distinct uh, probability of that. The same, I think, with Walsh. You know, the uh, Bush was dead. All the polls were showing uh, Bush picking up momentum going into the last weekend before the election. Uh, he uh, he was essentially tied. And that Friday, uh, you know, Walsh dumps an indictment with, with Bush discussed in the indictment, although he's, he's not indicted, but there was some... And the media essentially created the illusion that Bush was somehow wrapped up in illegal conduct. And the bottom fell out. The bottom fell out of the polls and and Bush lost. So that was a very bitter pill. Well, the special counsel law was so bad. I I, you served for Judge Wilkie on the D.C. Circuit as a clerk. I served for Roger Robb and George McKinnon. And Robb was part of the three judge panel that selected special counsels. And we had to select the special counsel for Ed Meese, for whom I later worked. And he picked Jake Stein on the theory that Jake Stein was a busy guy and he wouldn't screw around and he'd get it done. And he did. He got it done in right. three months and it was done. If you hire an old retired judge, he milked that for six years. Who? What were they thinking? Right. There was a bad selection. There was a bad selection there on Walsh. And Walsh had personal animus, uh, just watching him uh, and what what I picked up while I was there, it was clear to me he had some personal animus toward Bush. Did you and, know uh, and, Roger Robin McKinnon, by the way? Did you work with him at all when you were a clerk? Yes, both were still on the court when I was there. Yeah. Great men. Great men. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let me turn to big tech. Have you read Shoshana Zuboff's The Age of Surveillance Technology? No, I haven't. She is a Marxist HBS professor, but she's good on this. And you talk about not just the concentration of economic power, but of cultural and ideas power combined with AI. And it's the most sophisticated discussion of the threat that I've read between two covers yet. Here's my problem. China controls their AI and their social tech, and they have 1.3 billion people. Don't we have to allow concentration of data in order to keep up with China on AI? Um, no, I, I mean, I, AI is uh, certainly improved the more data it gets to chew on. Um, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be this, the kind of personal data that, that consumers, uh, you know, that, that relate to consumers. Um so I, I don't think it's it's essentially it can be data that we get from elsewhere. Um, so I don't think that allowing the, the centralization of all personal data involved in people's interactions with the internet, uh, you know, have to be centralized in one place for us to compete on AI. You know, your three possible approaches to big tech excluded a fourth, which is on my menu, which is expropriation. I mean, just buy it. Just take over Facebook and Twitter and everyone and Google. What do you make of that? Is that just too big to swallow? You mean the government take it over? Yeah, just buy it. 
Well, and then what would you do with it? You'd you would run it like an airport. You would, you would have like the Washington Metropolitan Area Transportation Authority, because I don't want private people, right? I know Mark Zuckerberg. I've had dinner with him. He's come to the Nixon Library. I, I, I know these guys. I know Peter Thiel. They're not, they're not unpatriotic. They're just self-interested capitalists. And they're progressive. They're lefties, except Peter. And I, I don't want to screw them. And I don't, want to re- I don't think the regulators are smart enough, are they? Well, the thing there is the government would then be making the decisions. I'm not sure I, tr- I trust the government to make the decisions unless you had a regime that was locked in that essentially, you know, that essentially had them run it as a bulletin board where there is no control over content. Yeah, but if the government ran it, the First Amendment would apply, right? And so would due process and all the other constitutional protections. The problem is that they're unregulated governments. Well, yeah, they're they're unregulated public square. They they control. We've privatized the public square, or we are privatizing the public square, and then they get to make the decisions. Um, but I think we've reached a point where I think an argument is starting to emerge, and I think it could be a valid argument that when the government quote jawbones these companies to be quote more responsible and pushes them, as this administration is pushing them to exercise their censorship, then the censorship is state action. Um, so I think the, the, the way the government is now pushing the companies to be responsible and, and to uh, use its censorship in certain ways makes it state action. I, I, I uh, 100% agree with you on this. If, if anything comes out of one damn thing after another, it will be the conservative rethink of their approach to big tech. So compliments on that. Um, Again, I got a lot of things I want to move through. I'm not going to do the whole book, but I want people to understand why they want to read it. Have you read Peggy Noonan's essay on the unprotected versus the protected? No. She wrote an essay in 2016 that predicted Trump's win because America is divided into the protected people like you and me. People who have money and resilience and status and those who don't and get screwed by COVID and everybody else. And Trump was their tribute. And this is my way into Trump. You refer to the mysterious workings of his stream of consciousness. He's a developer, General Barr. And I've dealt with developers. They were my clients for years. They, they, they're they whatever they need to be in, whatever room they walk into. There's no obstacle that is insurmountable. They get done what they need to get done. And then they change. But at the point that he arrived, he was the tribune of the unprotected. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. Using, the, using Noonan's nomenclature, yes. I, I don't use it in the book. I talk about you know the the American working class and middle class and the you know the more smug elites that the system works for. They can they know how to work the system and it works for them and they really don't care about anybody else. And you know that uh, there was a, there was definitely a seed of that in in Reagan. So it's not new with Trump. Correct. Uh, yeah. And, and, and most, you know, I, I consider Trump's agenda, the Make America Great agenda, the American First agenda, pretty much to be uh, a sort of Reagan Republic, Republicanism with, with sort of two areas, uh, maybe uh, a little juiced up. One is he puts more of an emphasis on fair trade and looking at some of the implications of free trade before you, you know, before you uh, jump in. And the second area is 
probably he's he's ratcheted up the populist strain um, to go after the elites more. But but Reagan used to talk about the uh, the elite, the coastal elites. Yeah. And, um, and so uh, I think that basically the framework has been Reagan Republicanism with a strong element of populism. I've got to tell the audience who are listening, why you want to read one damn thing after another is that all of Trump in the round is presented here. I still talk to the president occasionally, but um, he cleared a path on his desk with me when I was in the Oval the one time with him, like he did with you, in order to kind of drill you. I got that. He put scotch tape on your tie. He told you not to lose too much weight. He criticized every one of my media appearances that he ever saw. He called, I mean, I've got Trump tattoos, not as many as you, but I got a few Trump tattoos and a hyperactive generator of generator of ideas, most of them bad. And I am not comparing him to Churchill, but I wish to point out that Churchill readily admitted to having 10 ideas a day. Nine of them were bad. And so idea generators are not a bad thing. You just can't act on them. Right. And also, I think you have to be open to uh, listening to other people and, you know, appraising their, you know, their, their uh, criticisms. And he wasn't frequently, he, he would just listen to the people who tended to agree with him. He was less open to reason and more open to his own self-interest. In other words, if you made an argument saying, look, this is not in your interest because this will come back and bite you in this way. He would listen to that. But if you tried to sort of do public policy arguments based on logic and sort of overall impact of the policy, uh, it wouldn't be very persuasive. You know, I've often said, General Barr, I found him ignorant on many issues, but he's not a stupid man. And that the no, media he's made, the, he's a very brilliant man in some respect, but he's intuitive and he does not discipline his search for facts. Uh, And as a result, in fact, you called it the poker game at the frat house, which never ended. I love that analogy, by the way. I I didn't belong to a frat. Which frat were you in, by the way, General? Sigma Nu. Okay, so there was this frat game going on. And so Madeline and Molly granted easy access to the president. You could walk in. The TV was always on. Do you know anybody else who has the TV always on? No, I don't. I do. (laughs) Jeff Jeff, uh, uh, Zucker did. Every, oh, yeah. Everybody in media has a TV always on. He talked to you about ratings and his, uh, I found it fascinating that you talked to him about the briefings and I saw it in real time. He was destroying himself with the briefings, but he said the ratings were good. He didn't understand. That was not a good thing. Right. No, yeah. You know, he, there were issues that everybody was united on and trying to persuade him to stop. And one of those was, uh, those briefings. I mean, initially it was good. He actually got some benefit from it, but as they went on and on and on, uh, they were hurting him and they were clearly hurting him. Uh, Before I go to China, Mr. Attorney General, I want to talk to you about my biggest constitutional argument with you. I thought you should have relitigated the census question. I wrote a column in the Washington Post. I then got a call from someone at Justice telling me to shut up. I was wrong. So I shut up. I actually, I got a call. Actually, it was one of the senators called me up and said, you're wrong. Stop. But I don't think I'm wrong. Ludig agreed with me, by the way, that you should have gone back with another question for the census. And I know you ran out of time and it would be embarrassing to admit that you had you actually hadn't run out of time. 
Do you regret that? No, not at all, because I, I think that I didn't agree with the opinion, uh, Robert's opinion, but I thought Robert's clearly thought this was the end of the case because the Justice Department had said emphatically that we couldn't go beyond a certain date. And uh, we had already gone beyond that date. And for us to go back and try to relitigate this, remember, the only reason we got to the Supreme Court was we went from the district court all the way up to the Supreme Court. We hopped over the courts of appeal, which is pretty unusual. And we did it because of our uh, saying that we were running out of time. If having lost in the Supreme Court, we then went back again to square one, as if we didn't have any time constraint and could push off the census. Uh, there's no way I think the Supreme Court would have again taken the, the case on an expedited basis. We would have we would have just been burning up time, and I think it would have backfired and, and irritated the Supreme Court. But then we had a practical problem, which is actually the issue of whether we could uh, do it without starting to print uh, the questionnaires for the census, and would we really have to delay the sen uh, census? And I think logistically, we couldn't come up with a way of doing it. I think the argument would have been, you know, I'm Bill Barr and uh, I didn't stay at a Holiday Inn, but I know how important the census is. And if we include non-citizens, it's going to fundamentally change the distribution of political power in the United States. So we're going to have to delay the census. Have you watched the Ohio Supreme Court general and what they have done with the maps in Ohio? They're basically ruling Ohio like a banana republic. Right. So. The census, the, the census being on time has not mattered to the Ohio Supreme Court or the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. They're all just screwing around with it. So why don't Republicans play to win on the census the way the Democrats do? Well, I think generally on elections, elections and election integrity issues and so forth, we should. But what got us in trouble on this, by the way, is, is the... And, and, and the tendency uh, of, the, of Trump and his administration was they, they take things a little bit too far and are too cute by half. Had, had this thing just been handled in the normal course, there wouldn't have been a problem. But they went for extra credit in the rational. <laughs> you didn't use that line in the book. I don't think. What? I don't think you what? used the extra credit line in the book. That's good. <laughs> yeah, they, they went for extra credit and they tried to. You know, get and and I, you know, I suspect that there were people at the White House sort of saying, you know, we need to. And I won't say who those people probably were, but they were probably pushing, um, you know, to, to to structure this thing in the way it was ultimately structured. And unfortunately, they created a legal vulnerability when they did that. Otherwise, as as Robert said, you you there are plenty of reasons to ask this question. You didn't have to conjure up a false one that really wasn't the reason. I agree. And that's what happened. They, I they, just they would went, have gone back. For, yeah, they I went just, for extra credit. And, uh, <laughs> it was clearly it was clearly a facade. And so they right. should have started over. So let me let me go back to the uh, to the legal team surrounding President Trump, because you are very critical of Rudy Giuliani's legal advice. Uh, at one point, you say, good morning, Mr. Mayor. Good to see you. I lied. That's about as, as, as <laughs> see, I read closely, right? And uh, yeah. what happened to Rudy? You know, I, I really don't know. I don't know. And, and the extent I have 
suspicions, I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't say them about another person. But you know, I because can't... my first day at the Department of Justice was his last day as Associate Attorney General. He gave the longest farewell speech I ever heard in my life. Uh, Bill Smith almost fainted standing up, yes. and he was a tremendous lawyer. But as you, I, I, I can't use the language because this may play on the FCC regulated Hugh Hewitt show on the radio and not just the podcast. But your assessment of the president's legal team at the end during the crisis of 1-6 was that it wasn't really a legal team. Right. It was a PR. It was a PR team. And even then it was a bad one. So, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the people that he had running around the Oval Office and advising him at the end uh, was just uh, sort of surrealistic. Um, and, and yeah, yeah. Let, let me ask you about David Margolis. One of my funny questions from the from the book. Uh, I didn't know Mr. Margolis when I was at Justice. Um, he was, for the benefit of the audience, the head of the the career division of prosecutors. When he was dying, he requested to see two people: you and Merrick Garland, which is a pretty unusual circumstance, given that he didn't know that Merrick Garland was going to be the Attorney General. Um, and then you remark that the Russian fiasco, Russiagate, would not have happened if David Margolis had not fallen ill. Why? Okay, well, just, you know, his family notified me and asked me, you know, told me that if I wanted to see him, I would have to get over to the hospital, and I did. And then I think they did likewise to Merrick Garland. That's how we both ended up as the last non-family people there. But... um because I, I don't think he, I think he would, uh, this would have been, you know, in the first part of the Trump administration, I, I don't think he would have allowed people to go down the route of bringing in a special counsel, uh, Mueller, to uh, to look at this. I think I agree. Have, okay, that's yeah. what you meant. Uh, he would have yeah. just kept it in-house. because Now, you remark that uh, when you met with Bob, who you knew forever, Bob Mueller, he didn't look well and that the Senate hearing did not, or the House hearing did not go well. Um, did he run that investigation, in your opinion, or did his career staff run that investigation? You know, I was concerned that he wasn't supervising it. He, he was not on top of it. And at the beginning, and on Meet the Press 20 different times, I said, wait for the Mueller investigation, wait for the Mueller investigation. I never thought we would get two volumes that, do not. I, I, it's almost unethical. And I, I wanted to ask you about this. The second volume is, in my view, an unethical departure from the Department of Justice standard. Do you share my view? Well, I wouldn't you know, I'm not going to use the word unethical, uh, but, you know, it was a departure from. From the department's practice, but but I felt the whole thing was was outrageous because. I think by the time he came in, which was May of 2017, uh, it was pretty clear that the dossier had been completely discredited, and there really didn't appear to be any basis for the collusion thing. And rather than you know quickly decide the collusion issue, he embarked on a two essentially a two year, and I think it's not as I say, it's not very different than a witch hunt. Uh, to try to get the president on some kind of obstruction of justice. And it was con continuous, 
continuous bootstrapping. They started out with two things that clearly were not obstruction, the firing of Comey and a, and a comment the president made about, you know, to Comey about seeing your way, way clear to let Flynn go. Neither of those could possibly be obstruction of justice. And yet they started with those. And then as they stretched the thing out for two years, every time the president uh, threw a tantrum, they investigated that as an obstruction. Uh, it, it was an outrage. And then, uh, you know, I, I do think that that Mueller, to give him credit, he would not go along with, uh, in, you know, trying to indict the president or suggest that the president was indictable at some point for obstruction. He didn't go that far because I think there was disagreement on the team. And they ended up just throwing this stuff out in the public domain. And, uh, you know, I, I think that was irresponsible. I thought it was a vendetta. And I, and the career lawyers surrounding uh, a less than top of his game, Bob Mueller, took it forever to the great detriment of the country. And I think you share that opinion at length as to why it did hurt us. Let me ask you about the 1-6 committee. Uh, my friend Liz Cheney and I disagree about this. And I do like Liz Cheney. I've known her a long time. And her, her dad is, I worked for her mother when I was general counsel of NEH. And I, I love the Cheneys. But I think the 1-6 committee is a miscarriage of justice. What do you think, General Barr? Well, I, I, th I think that I, what I disagree with, with Liz Cheney on is I think once the leadership decided that Republicans weren't going to have anything to do with it because it would become inherently political. If I had been in her shoes, I think I would have supported the leadership. But by not going that way, it gives it a patina of bipartisanship. Uh, so I am worried about it being used as a political tool during this election year. That's what I think is happening. The, now, the uh, other thing is, the, the other thing is, is that uh, if there really was an evidence uh, from which someone might be able to make a case that the president did something illegal then the people to get to the bottom of it is the Department of Justice who have grand juries available. And they're and, getting them. They're getting the conspiracy. The seditious conspiracy indictments are right. finally and, showing and so up. They've been, right. They've been going down there. There's no sign that they have evidence uh, that would leak, that would link higher ups to it. Uh, but if there were, that's, that's the venue to pursue it in. Um, not Capitol Hill. That's one of my concerns. Yeah, one of the things I'm going to use one damn thing after another is to teach legal ethics about the Roger Stone sentencing. It's a very compelling portion, General, uh, because everyone deserves one rule, one rule of law. Not, right. And I don't like Roger Stone. I've never met him. Carl Rove warned me about him when I was a freshman in college in 1974, and I have stayed the hell away from Roger Stone as a result for 45 years. But he deserved the same sentencing that another person would have gotten. And you make a very eloquent case for that. That's right. I, you know, I personally don't like Roger Stone at all. I thought he did violate the law and he deserved to be convicted and he deserved to go to jail, in my opinion. But he didn't deserve to go to jail three times longer than anyone else in his position. Yes. Would have. It's called the rule of law. Let me I got two more things while I have time. One. Tim Garrison was a U.S. attorney for, I think, the Western District of Missouri. Good friend of mine. Yes. And he yes. told me once about Operation Legend. And I said, right. what? I said, what? 
And he couldn't believe I hadn't heard of Operation Legend because I'm a Beltway journalist. And it turns out you're very proud of Operation Legend. But now I know why I didn't hear about it. It's because President Trump didn't care about it. (laughs) Yeah, there were days where he cared about it. But then when push came to shove, uh, you know, he, he didn't seem to pay much attention to it. But we were trying to help various jurisdictions, big cities, uh, keep the violent crime rate down by sending in more federal agents and setting up these joint task forces and going after the real violent people. And we were trying to do this in the middle of COVID, which made it difficult. But we, we were getting some very good results, including in Missouri. Uh, and uh, and uh, the president, I, I the president one of his problems was he'd go out every day and give a strain of, uh, I mean, a stream of consciousness news, uh, you know, state things to the press, and he'd cover 15 different issues, and the media would pick out one that was, quote, controversial, and they'd focus on that, and that would be the news of the day. And that prevented any mes- message discipline. We couldn't talk about violent crime or anything because it would, it would be just swept away with something that the president said off the top of his head to a journalist that day at the White House. And I complained to the president about that. I said, well, you know, we have no message discipline. And he said, well, no one, no one gives a damn about legend anyway. Um, at which point the press secretary said, no, Mr. President's actually getting a lot of good local coverage and people like it out there. And uh, yeah, you have a kind word for Kayleigh McEnany and a kind word for Stephen Miller at that point. Uh, I was I was impressed with your detail about that meeting. Uh, I want to finish before we run out of time. The most important subject in the book is China. And uh, it's China because that's our existential threat. And so realistically, uh, in 1992, when you left justice, you reassigned 900 counterintelligence agents because of the end of the Cold War. Do you regret that? No, uh, no, I don't. Because, I mean, I there's no reason to think at that point we'd be facing the kind of threat we're facing now from China uh, at, at the point I did that. The... And those people were people who were, well, you know, we had a lot following the Russians at that point, and, and uh, we could afford to cut back on the extent to which we were on top of the Russians. You know, when you were AG the first time, did you? I was Bill Smith and Ed Meese's special assistant for FISA applications. Did you have one, or had National Security Division taken that over by the time you were Attorney General? The National Security Division had okay. taken that over the second time. On the first time, it was still in criminal. Okay, there was no there was no National Security Division when I was at Justice, but I was stunned by the breadth and depth of the Soviet effort and the East Germans and the Cubans to penetrate America when I got the classification. I think it's dwarfed by the CCP. Am I right? Right. And and as you know, the way it was traditionally done, it was basically run out of embassies by, by the Foreign Intelligence Service. So in the case of the communist Russians, you know, they would have intelligence officers working out of their embassy and recruiting people to serve as spies, essentially. The Chinese use what we call traditional collectors, and they use graduate students, for example, sometimes businessmen, so forth, who come over here and get involved in activities of intelligence interest and report report back to China. So you might have a 
uh, a research project at a university in agricultural science, which is one of the areas the Chinese want to lead the future in. And there might be a graduate student on the project, and he could be reporting back, uh, you know, stealing secrets and reporting them back to China. Well, just your quick summary of the of the two entrepreneurs who went to graduate school, stole the coding technology and then took it back to China. And you got one because of a sealed indictment. That is just one example of thousands of cases. So my question is, is it too late? Can we overcome their espionage effort in the United States? Well, it's not too late if we were to, you know, double down, essentially, and, and keep up the, the aggressive enforcement that we had. Uh, but this administration has terminated the program because of complaints from universities. I think the actual the actual problem for us isn't the intensity of what the Chinese are doing. It's the uh, fact that American institutions don't care anymore. I point out that in World War II and in the Cold War, we, we, we're not a regimented society, but we voluntarily came together, academia, business, and government, to face these, these uh, existential threats. But this one, uh, we're not. Uh, businessmen are out busy, busily trying to you know, make as much money as they can with the Chinese, even though they know at the end of the day it's a losing game. And academia is desperate for Chinese bucks and Chinese students. Uh, because that's the only way they can survive. Um, so, you know, the government doesn't find partners the way easily in, in either in academia or in business world that they used to be able to. So I, I want to conclude on political violence, General Barr. Uh, you write in one damn thing after another that the FBI is concerned with both the far right in America and the far left, as it should be but that for institutional reasons, it's much more competent when it comes to the far right than to the far left. Can you explain why that is? Well, part of it, uh, I think initially part of it was uh, just the institutional memory that every time they got in trouble and they were raked through the coals uh, by the media and by Congress, uh, it was because they spied on left-wing activities. So like, yep. like during the cold, during the cold war, you know, the Russians were pumping a lot of money into the peace movement. And when the, when the FBI sort of tried to look at that, they were attacked. Um, they were attacked for penetrating, you know, the civil rights movement and so forth. So institutionally, they've, they've really been hammered when, whenever they go after left, they're, they're, they're on, on the lookout for left-wing extremism. But no one pushes back when they go after right-wing extremism. So you probably have a situation in the country now where, I mean, not probably, I mean, the FBI has a very, very good handle on right-wing extremist groups, um, but, but does not have similar handle on left-wing. So as a result, the intelligence flow coming into the uh, Department of Justice tends to be weighted toward right-wing extremism because those groups are, you know, carefully uh, monitored but i also think the left-wing people extremists are smarter than the right-wing extremists i mean they have done go ahead yeah well there's no question i mean someone said well you know why why have they arrested all these people on capitol hill and so forth now you know it could be that in some cases they've gone too far but i said well basically because you know these the people who went up on january 6th were you know 
with violence in mind. You know, they dressed distinctively. They had their faces observable. And they went into an environment with hundreds of cameras. And so there's no question that they were involved in the violence. Okay, but out in Portland, they all dress alike. They're all in black. They all have masks. They operate at night. Uh, and, and, and while they're surrounded by a crowd, you know, these bricks and other projectiles will come flying out. It's very hard to, to identify and deal. And they use end to end encryption and Apple won't help yeah. you open up. I, I mean, you again, toast Apple. And I am so angry that they would not help you after the Pensacola. I didn't know that, by the way, Attorney yeah. General Barr, that they would not help you unlock the Pensacola shooter. That is so stunning. It happened in San Bernardino when I lived in California, and I couldn't believe that Apple wouldn't help local authorities unlock the Apple phone of that killer. But the Pensacola killer, who's a Saudi, a foreign national, they wouldn't help you. What is wrong with them? Well, it really goes to the way they design the phone, and that's what we're basically objecting to. They're designing something that no one can open except the user. And... Their argument is we we can't even open it. Uh, and what we're saying is, you know, that's irresponsible to put something like that out. And the company should have the keys to it so that when we get a warrant based on probable cause that criminal activity is underway, we should be able to have you open it. Uh, and um, so intelligence and law enforcement going forward is going to be blinded. So let me close. I told you 10 o'clock. I'm keeping my word. Afghanistan is covered in this book, as is Russia, as is why we would possibly before Ukraine wanted to have done a deal with Russia. That's all covered in the book. But Afghanistan, you are very clear. President Trump left open the conditions under which he would have left. He has told me on the air they would have kept Bagram. He hadn't said that in other places, but he said it here on the air. Um, do you believe that Afghanistan would have ended up the same way? I know your answer to this, but tell the audience if it had been Donald Trump reelected as opposed to Joe Biden. Yeah. I think, again, he had the president had some, I think, bad impulses here, which is just sort of cut and run at one point, And he put out an order to that effect. But he was talked out of it uh, by Mike Pompeo and by Robert O'Brien. And personally, and and so by the time he left office, he had not made a final decision on on how he would have withdrawn. My guess is, based on sort of what I picked up, my guess is he would have, uh, we would have left uh, maybe uh, uh, 2,500 Americans supplemented by maybe 5,000 NATO troops, so probably about 7,500 troops. Uh, And we would have kept Bagram Air Base uh, part of those troops would have been protecting Bagram. Um, and uh, we would not have withdrawn the way we did. Uh, we, we would have, in essence, been the biggest warlord. I believe that's your phrase. And that would right. have been smart. Okay, last question. Kosh Patel and the attempt to take over the FBI. I don't want to get into the details here. I just want people to know that sometimes the only thing you can do is say no and leave the room. Uh, right. Isn't isn't that one of the most important things in the world is to say no and leave the room? Yeah, and and I had to do that a few times, and that was one of the the times where, you know, the president was trying to 
push me to put somebody as the number two at FBI that had never been. I mean, it just he, he the non-agent could not be the chief operating officer of the FBI, and he wanted to put in Cash Patel, and I said no and left the room. So. And they set up a, a, it's just a wild thing. I think Meadows did a pretty good job as chief of staff. O'Brien's one of my closest friends and Secretary Pompeo is. Uh, of all the Republicans running, do you have a favorite yet? Because Cotton and Pompeo are a buddy of mine. DeTantis is obviously talented. Tim Scott's going to run. Rick Scott's going to run. The vice president, Pence, is going to run. Do you have any favorites in this, General Barr? No, not at this Not at this time. I mean, like you, a lot of them are, almost all of them are my friends, and some are better friends than others, but I do want to see sort of see them in action and how they play. So very last question for future attorney generals: Should they come on the Hugh Hewitt show more often? Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) And that that will actually be one of the criteria that we use. (laughs) (laughs) The book is one damn thing after another memoirs of an attorney general. It's a, it's the most comprehensive statement of constitutional conservatism in 2022 available. I really enjoyed it, General. Thank you for spending all this time with me. Thank you so much, Hugh. I really appreciate it. Be well. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.